Well, on the wall at Timberlake Christian Schools, there's a, there's a sign that hangs. And the first part of it says, educating from a biblical worldview. It just simply means that we're training students to interpret life, think about all facets of life through the lens of the Scriptures, through the perspective of our Creator. And... Um, I found myself this past week thinking about that, that concept of interpreting things through the lens of the Bible, through, through what God would, would say about, about a matter. Um, this past week we, we witnessed a, 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 just a heartless thing. It's really hard to get your mind around what took place with the WDBJ reporters and the, the lady from the Chamber of, of Commerce where... 24-year-old Allison Williams and 27-year-old Adam Ward were, uh, Ward were, uh, were really just shot down and premeditated uh, cold blood by, by a former co-worker. Um, and what made it different from, from other murders, murders happen, unfortunately, because of the, the fall and life under the, living life under the sun. What, what made this one different it was it was captured on live TV and, and the murderer planned it that way. It was... It was his intent to gain maximum exposure to express his indignation, his unrighteousness about being a being victimized in in his life for for so many different different things that 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 he felt. And as I've listened, uh, I'm always interested when something public like that happens. Um, first, you you weep and you grieve and you pray for the people that are involved. But but I always listen for how people interpret it and, and respond. Um, and people do that on a regular basis, especially with things that they can't understand. You'll, you'll hear uh, you know, someone say, well, things happen for a reason. You know, or they'll say, you know, when, whenever they fail, well, um, you know, a very unbiblical, this is not in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. You'll hear something like that. The Bible says exactly the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. Amen. Because we can't. And as I watch, listen to people try to make, make sense out of it, there's been hours of commentary on it, you know, and, and probably even more so because these were, these were media figures. So, you'd be, if you are in the media, you're going to be focused on your, you know, on your own kind. And, and everyone from presidential candidates to, to our governor offered their condolences and then proposed a solution to keep it from happening again. But, but in the end, every single one of them uh, confessed that they really had no sufficient answer for why. They would bring the experts on. They would bring the FBI profilers on. They would bring psychiatrists and psychologists. And every single one of them concluded the same thing. Well, we can't get in the mind of someone like this. We, we don't know why a person would, would do some of those things. We can, we can see factors, but we can't conclude as, as why. Some offered the pontification about you know, gun laws that prompted the, prompted the crime, so we need to, we need to have stricter uh, controls, only to find out that Mr. Flanagan, you know, passed a government background check and, and purchased the gun legally that, that he used. Um, heard others blame the issue on, on his mental health. It said the system failed him. Um, if he'd gotten mental health care sooner, then, then he might not have done such a thing. Except this guy had, uh, had health care coverage in all of his journalist positions and had excellent access to, to care. Um, some people said, I heard them say, it's just, you know, it's our society. It's just getting more and more violent. And they offered reasons why. It's, it's violent movies or first-person shooter video games. And, and while it might seem like that these kind of crimes are, are increasing due to instant media coverage, uh, as shocking and horrible as they are, they're actually decreasing in our, in our country. Did you know that? Um, Violent crimes of all kinds, not just gun violence, but violent crimes of all kinds. This is government statistics, okay? Have been steadily decreasing since the 1990s. Does it seem like that? Does it seem like that they're steadily decreasing? It seems like they're steadily increasing. I think it's kind of like the homosexual movement 
you feel like everybody's a homosexual when you turn the TV on, right? When there's only 2 or 3% of our country that, that identify as, as that way. By the FBI's definition, which has the most comprehensive public list, there have been 71, 71 too many, but 71 mass shootings nationwide between 1982 and 2015. That's 33 years. In 33 years... Since 1982, when they began to track it, there have been 71 mass shootings. I would expect that number to be in the hundreds. And while that's, that's good news, that it's on the decline, it doesn't really make you feel much safer, especially when it happens someplace like this in Roanoke, where you've been at Smith Mountain Lake and you stood right there. And, I mean, you, you recognize uh, the people. And so it... It, you think of those things, and it it doesn't give you comfort, and it obviously doesn't help us to interpret why things like that that happen. And I guess that back to what I was saying earlier, that was what was consistent. Every explanation I heard this past week, in the end, the commentator would confess, "I really don't have a reason. I don't know what would make a person do something like that." Well, I, I want to give you some news this morning, the Bible clearly defines why an individual would do such a thing and clearly gives a progression of how a person like this gentleman or any person begins and where they end and then shows us where where we fit into that. And I want to show you what God has to say. Uh, He's not a pontificator. He is the Word. He presents the Word that is infallible and inerrant, and He's the Creator, and He knows the human heart, and He speaks to us from His Word. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And beginning in verse 21 through 25. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. Do we really not know why an individual does such a thing? The answer to that is, is, of course we know. It's right here. It's always been here. When we read these passages, they will be very familiar to you. In five short verses, Jesus tells us the root cause, explains it in light of God's law, and then tells us what we should do whenever these seeds begin to, to be sown in our own hearts. Let's read Matthew five twenty one through through 26. And then we'll go back and explain it and then apply it, okay? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, and whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna, or hell fire. So, or therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you, deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there, that is, prison, until you have paid every last penny. Now, no doubt, very familiar passage of Scripture. Let me give you the context because this is part of a very long sermon that begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and continues to the end of chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the, on the Mount. It has an introduction, which is very familiar to you if you're a believer, the Beatitudes, blessed are the... And he fills in the blanks, that's the introduction. Then he has the body of the sermon, exactly what Jesus intends to communicate... And then there's an invitation to respond to this sermon in the, in the end. And our passage comes in the, in the body of the sermon, in the section of the sermon where Jesus explains the extent of the law. All of the Sermon on the Mount is about 
is about salvation. It's a call to salvation for those who are outside of Christ. And then it gives some instructions of those who are already saved, those who are already in Christ, of, of what life in the kingdom looks like. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, you will hear the words of God, the words of Jesus calling you to salvation. He's going to hold up for you the mirror of His law, and He's going to show you your reflection in that mirror, and that mirror is going to be very penetrating, very revealing. And then He's going to point you where you should turn once you see that very ugly portrait of yourself, just like I did at 24. And if you're a Christian, you already know that. You already know your portrait is ugly. And so you have looked to Christ who's on the tree. You, you have stopped looking to yourself for your own righteousness, and you look to Jesus for, for righteousness. And, and, and you desire the kingdom to reign on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is not here yet. The physical kingdom of Christ is coming. It's not here yet. But for Christians, it reigns in our hearts. We live under the lordship of Christ, the King. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. These are the words of the, of the King. And, and so we hear Jesus even whenever He gives that prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, where is God's will done on earth? It's done in believers because believers submit to the Lordship of Christ. So the, this sermon can also be applied to you if you are a, a believer. And you can go back and we don't have time, but you can look at the Beatitudes and see Jesus is talking about the... The kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, that is, over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the, the inheritance of the earth in the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And it goes on and on and on. And Jesus introduces the message that way. But I want you to look at verse 20. Because here's the hinge where Jesus turns from the introduction and the fact that He hasn't come to destroy the law. He's not reinventing anything about God. He's giving the true intent. He hasn't come to destroy the law but fulfill it. But He makes a shocking statement in verse 20. And then our passage is right after it. Jesus says, For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness, goes far beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious of the day, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say you'll squeak in and you won't get very many rewards. It says that you're not getting in the kingdom unless your righteousness goes far beyond. It, it exceeds above and beyond what you see in the righteousness of the scribes and, and the Pharisees. Now, that would have been a breathtaking statement to the people that are listening to Jesus' sermons. Now, you and I are already programmed. I mean, when we hear Pharisee, we think bad, right? We think hypocrite. We think guy who's a legalist. But that was not what, what the Christians, I mean, the, the, the Jews here thought. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious of the day. I mean, putting this in context for us today, it would, it would be like, I mean, these are the guys that were as close to, to, to the law as possible. They restricted their lives in ways to make them holy. And they would have been considered, it would be like, like someone who's a devout Catholic hearing someone say, unless you become more spiritual than the Pope, you're not getting into heaven. I mean, that's how significant this statement was. God's standard is a righteousness that's not attainable by men. And except your righteousness exceed the most religious individual in your community, the most religious individual in your mind, you will not get into the kingdom. That probably left people stunned. And then Jesus goes on to explain why. And we have in verse 21 the beginning of that teaching. And it's on murder, the sixth commandment. We won't go to all of these, but Jesus begins to unfold the, the mirror of the law showing our lack of righteousness and God's standard of righteousness through six common teachings. He covers murder. He covers adultery. He covers a covenant commitment. He covers oaths 
He covers personal retaliation, and then he summarizes it with love. Those were all common teachings that were rooted in the Old Testament law that the people listening to Jesus would have fully understood. And that's why you see him going back and forth. You have heard. It's been interpreted. But I say unto you, here is the correct interpretation. All of those six were rooted in God's eternal law, but they had been weakened by human interpretation. And the first is our passage in verse 21 through through 25. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Now, now I don't know if this is what the Holy Spirit intended, but I, but I do think it's, it's fitting that he starts with murder because the very first scene that you find after the fall, what tells us in Genesis how bad was the fall, the very first scene after the fall is Cain and Abel, right? Murder. I mean, how bad was it? I mean, God said, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Adam didn't immediately die physically. He did die spiritually. And so we're left to say, okay, help me interpret. Yeah, they're driven out of the garden. Yes, they're going to toil by the the sweat of their brow. And and Eve is going to labor in in childbearing. The battle of the sexes is going to begin to take place after the fall. But just how bad is it? How deeply messed up our human beings. And the very first scene that God gives us is murder. That's how bad it is. The worst thing that you could possibly think of, murder, is there. And so Jesus starts with murder here to, to hold up the mirror of the law, and it's the, it's the sixth commandment. And verse 21 through 25 is, is, is very simple. There are two parts. Jesus gives two explanations of thou shalt not murder. And the first one is he clarifies the commandment in, in verses 21 through 22. And then he applies the sixth commandment in verses 23 through 25. Now remember, this is part of a larger sermon, which has an invitation much later. So we're like taking one point of the sermon and, and looking at it. So you're not going to find an invitation or an introduction or otherwise. I mean, this is part of a sermon. And so Jesus is applying the Sixth Commandment. There's the, he clarifies the Sixth Commandment, and then He applies the Sixth Commandment. And that's the structure of the text, so we're going to follow that. Let's look at the clarifying, how Jesus clarifies the Sixth Commandment. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Of course, they heard right. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. That also is right. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the, of the judgment. He first gives the current religious teaching and then clarifies God's true meaning. You have heard, but I say. Now, ever since Moses descended from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, God's people understood that thou shalt not murder was part of the law. I mean... That's one of the commandments that, that, that's easy uh, for, people to, for people to grasp. It surely was for, for God's people. I mean, really, the prohibition against taking life goes, as I said, goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 4, back to Cain and Abel. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And God has always prohibited murder. It was prohibited long before the Ten Commandments. Don't think that, okay, now Moses comes from the mountain, so now you can't murder, and before that you, you could. I mean, it goes, God's law is eternal. The commandments just, just, just gave it to His people that's going to be living in His midst. And in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For God made man in His own image. He gives the reason for the seriousness of of murder. And why it requires the death penalty for those who commit it. Murder is so serious that the death penalty will be carried out by by the authority that God has granted to bear the sword in in, in vain. Or or to, to bear the sword. And they don't bear the sword in vain. The human authority. Now, what does that mean? Because you're made in the image of God. Murder is sinful, is wrong, because we're made in the image of God. It's homicide, in effect, is an attack on God, not just the person killed. Surely it's an attack on the person killed, 
But that individual is made in the image of God. And so it's, all sin is ultimately first against God and then against man. And it's first against God because they're attacking the image of God. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. I know sometimes when you look in the mirror, it does, you don't feel like the pinnacle of creation. But you are. You're different from animals. That's why evolution is an attack on God. Life is given by God, and that human life represents God. And while every Jew knew this, the leaders in Jesus' day had reduced the commandment to this to specific act of killing. They married the sixth commandment with Numbers 3530, which just mandated the death penalty, and they said, that's it. Okay? If you physically take a life, then what the sixth commandment means is you've got to die. And that's as far as it goes. I mean, you do the exact same thing that people do today. They, people reduce the scope of the law in order to reduce its reach, to reduce its condemnation. We explain away the law. We justify ourselves. And people today don't hold all life sacred. They, they limit, the right, limit the, the right and wrong to taking life and, in certain circumstances. And God says all life's valuable. Whether you, you are in... The womb, knowing that you that that, that that baby there has multiple sclerosis or that baby is going to be born mentally retarded or someone who is a terminal cancer and, and is in the last few moments of their life. Of course, that physical body is decaying because of, because of the fall, but the image of God is in that individual. And because of that, that's eternal. And that's valuable and important. And so the taking of that life is an attack on, on God. I mean, flesh and blood's not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to take this body into heaven. You're not going to have this body forever. And I say, praise the Lord. I don't want this body forever. I want a new one. And I'd like to tell God what I'd like for it to look like, but, you know, that's a whole other, whole other topic. With a good beard. Yeah, with a good beard. That's right. See, the problem with the ruler's interpretation is not what they said, it's what they left unsaid. Of course, thou shalt not murder. If you murder someone, you're in danger of the judgment. But their interpretation just didn't go far enough. They focused on the act, what God prohibited. Are you listening to me? This is worth the price of admission which was free. The law of God is far more than a penal code. The law of God is not just prohibition. The law of God tells us how to think, how to live. It's for our good. It's light that shines into the deepest regions of our intentions and exposes our aims. And the sixth commandment goes far beyond the physical act of killing. It applies to much more than actions. Let me illustrate that for you. Suppose this man this past week wanted to kill Allison and and Andy, but was stopped by some unexpected circumstance. Well, obviously we'd praise God because... Those two individuals would be alive, but would he be innocent just because he didn't get the chance to follow through on his desire? Think of it this way. Suppose he'd been too cowardly, but he would have liked to have done it. Or suppose he was too afraid of getting caught. What if he only hated them or spoke insults against them? Would he have been innocent of breaking the sixth commandment? Would he have been free from guilt before God? And Jesus says resoundingly, no, he wouldn't have been innocent. He would have absolutely been guilty. Look at what Jesus says here. But I say in you in verse 22 that whoever is angry with his brother deserves to be punished with death. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, deserves to be condemned by death by the Supreme Council or the Sanhedrin. And whoever asserts, you idiot will deserve to be cast into hell's fire. Now, do you reduce that in your mind? Or do you let the words of God stand? The temptation is to reduce that. You said that's crazy. You mean to tell me a bad attitude toward another person or calling them a name makes me guilty? Deserving of hell? I do that all the time. (laughs) It's exactly Jesus' point. You do that all the time. You need a righteousness 
that exceeds the outward acts. You need a righteousness that's inward, a righteousness of the heart that's born from holy, loving desires, not depraved nature that sometimes manifests itself in actions, but is still just as wicked if it is contained in the heart. You see how the law shines not just outwardly, but but inwardly. To be sure. Now, Jesus is not equating this silliness like, well, homosexuality is equated with with, uh, eating too much food. I mean, He's not saying being angry with your brother is equated equally with with the physical act of murder. He's saying that that you're guilty of the Sixth Commandment all the way back to the point where where the anger begins to get in, in your heart. Of course, it's worse. And it will be worse for you if you act upon that and, and go further and, and allow that sin to fester. But it's very easy for us to think in terms of a human court instead of the court that God holds. In a human court, we think we're guilty only if we commit the act because we can only look on the outward things. If you heard the, the station manager of WDBJ, you know, he, he emphasized that. We can only report what people say and what they do. We, we, can't, we can't report on their motives because we don't know their motives. Well, newsflash to, to all of us, God can report on motives because He sees them perfectly. He sees the heart. And the law shines the light on the heart. And you may be able to have perfect moral outward actions, but your heart can be like the Pharisees, full of dead men's bones. You're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You do all of the right things outwardly, but inwardly you're, you're full of wickedness. And Jesus says that we are far more sinful than we think we are. And His point, if you catapult to the end, is, is so that you'll see that you need righteousness, so you'll see you need a Savior, because, as Romans says, there is none righteous. And righteousness is what we need to get into heaven. And he goes through his progression, because that's his point. He starts with whoever is angry with his brother. He starts with anger in the heart, and then he moves to slander on the tongue, and then he moves to devaluing the soul, and then he moves to the actual murder with the hands. It goes through this progression. Look at what he says in verse 22. Whoever is angry with his, with his brother. It's a disposition and a destructive feeling. It's the murder of respect for a fellow human being. It's not the physical act of murder. It's an assassination of that person in your own heart, in your own mind, that's made in the image of God. You should have respect for fellow human beings because they're made in the image of God and you should hold that in their minds because we're co-image bearers with others. And sinful anger involves a feeling of our superiority and someone else's inferiority. And then we attack them in our hearts. We, we evaluate them. We don't look at the image of God. We look at how they measure up to, to us. And when we get angry at our spouse, we do so because we... We don't deserve that. Or we get mad at another driver because they're in our way. I have a joke with, with Tracy sometimes. Uh, I, you know, how's your day? I'm like, uh, everybody on the planet doesn't know that I'm out driving today. I mean, don't they understand I'm on the road? You need to get out of my way. I mean, I'm, I'm going where I need to go. It's the, it's the sinful disposition. It's our anger and in our anger, our intent is to hurt that, that person in our heart. We don't say anything at the anger level. We don't physically lay our hands on them at the anger level. Oh, but we do a whole lot in our hearts and minds, don't we? I mean, we just fillet them inside there. Sometimes we smile whenever we do it. Anger in the heart leads to slander on the tongue. Look what Jesus says. God said to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And watch this. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, a empty-headed. It's a verbal attack. Slander on the tongue. Whoever insults his brother. A verbal attack on someone's character. Jesus says, when, when in the spirit of contempt and disgust for another person in your heart and your mind, you verbally slander them. When you do that, you condemn yourself. Now, 
Some of your translations will, will point out this change, but he, but he goes from you're guilty, you're in danger of judgment, to being condemned. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of judgment. But whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be condemned by the council. That's the, that's the, the, San, the Sanhedrin. You're going to be brought before the Supreme Court of, of Israel. Guilt is a conclusion drawn by a judge, and a judge doesn't always have the smoking gun, as they say. So the judge has to draw conclusions, and humans can't see the heart. And so there's a conclusion that's drawn. And Jesus says that God sees your heart, and that makes you guilty, but when you open your mouth, you, con- you confirm it. You condemn yourself at that point. At that point, there's no need to, s- to state what can't be seen about the heart because your mouth confirms what's going on in the heart. And you and I totally understand this. I mean, you've been there. you felt the disrespect rising. You can't hold it back. And, and finally, it comes out of your mouth. Now, understand that the, the, it's rooted in the heart. It's rooted in the, the, the sinful perspective in, in the heart. Because this is not speaking the truth. I mean, what did Jesus call the Pharisees? He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. Some of the prophets of God... Uh, talked to Israel and the people of Israel who were gluttons and called them cows, the cows of Bashan, because they, they, were, they were feasting and they were more concerned about themselves. This is not about speaking the truth or sometimes rebuking someone. The issue here is it's slanderous. It's, it's attached to the heart. It's attached to a disposition in the, in, in the heart. Pride is involved. And you see in that moment... What you feel about another. And a part of your body is then used. It's then it's used, the mouth is used, and then it moves to the total devaluing of the of the person. Look. Look at verse twenty two, the end part of it. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of, of hell's fire. So there's the guilt that moves to the Supreme Court, and now he says you're going to hell. Starting with the heart moving to the slander on the tongue. And then he says, whoever says you fool, the valuing of the soul. Now, at first glance, you say, what's the difference? I don't even know what raka means. What's the difference between saying that to somebody and calling them a fool? I mean, both are used in the tongue. What's the, what's the difference? The difference is this goes beyond an insult. To call someone a fool means that you go beyond just cursing them in anger. It's a, it's a you're writing them off. Jesus is describing when, when you, just, you just don't care about them anymore. It's like, pfft, no use for you whatsoever. It's a, you totally devalued the individual. You're not speaking about an action. You don't have a disposition in your heart. You're not slipping. You, I mean, you look at that individual and you say, I don't care whether you live or die. That's what this means. It's becoming completely indifferent toward them. You just don't care. It's an absence of care. You could care less if you never saw them again. And Jesus is saying when you get there, judgment is deserved. It's the deserving of hell. Because it's the absolute opposite of the love we're supposed to have for our fellow man. You see, watch this progression. Why does he say when you get to that point where you write somebody off and you have that attitude in your heart that he he equates that of deserving of, of, of hell? Well, it goes back to the law. What you're supposed to have is love. What is, how's the Decalogue summarized? How did Jesus summarize the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. What should be coming out of the human heart is love for God and love for the fellow man. And so when you get to the point where you just have nothing to do with them whatsoever, you're at that place where there's nothing for them. Jesus says that at that point... You're confirmed. The judgment should fall. When our hearts and words get here, it confirms we deserve to die, not just physical death, but eternal fire. And Jesus is shining the law on our hearts. As you've heard Pastor Stephen say, and others say, our hearts is like our hearts like a sponge. And our circumstances ring out what's already what's already there. And of course, your your heart is 
obviously has another outlet. And that takes us back to what they were saying to begin with. Jesus ends with, you fool, you're going to be danger in hellfire. But he doesn't deny that, that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. I mean, it ultimately ends with murder on the hands, which is where this man ended up. We can express ourselves in heart, verbally, and then also physically. I mean, the murderer didn't wake up and just pull the trigger. He harbored bitterness in his heart, and that festered and turned to seething anger, and that anger was wrung out over many times with verbal confrontations. He's fired multiple places. There's a YouTube video of road rage that's there, rants, along with... I mean, the guy was a pervert. And the anger, when not dealt with, escalated and it needed a greater expression to satisfy itself. There's a progression here. The anger in the heart needs a greater expression, so it's verbal. And then when, when you say the verbal, then it needs a greater expression, which is, I'm done with you. And whenever you get to, I'm done with you, it needs a greater expression. Sin is, it has an insatiable desire. It must be fulfilled. And, and ultimately that was, was murder. But it even went beyond that. Not only did he kill two innocent people, but he killed himself. Because even that didn't satisfy his anger of taking those two people out of the world. You see, he didn't just hate his victims. He, he ultimately hated himself because he worshipped himself. And he found no fulfillment in the idol of self. And so he hated the idol that, that he made. He was a substance abuser, a homosexual, and 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 an angry man, both which worship self. Homosexuality is the ultimate worship of mankind. You, you worship even your own sex. And then in the end, he committed self-murder, and that's where all sin leads, self-murder. See, the idol promises you, if you do this, you will find fulfillment, and then whenever you follow after the idol and try to find fulfillment in the idol, the idol lets you down and then that turns to, to more anger. And all sin leads to self-murder. You may not use a gun, but sin kills you slowly. That drink, that grudge, that life of free of responsibility, that porn, that greed promises to fulfill you if you'll just worship it. But it leaves you empty and eventually will lead you to the judgment. And Jesus says... Get off that road and come to me because I can satisfy the deepest desires of the human heart. To be sure, He will call you to repentance. He'll call you to forsake that idol which won't fulfill anything in your life. And He will give you rest. And then He'll give you life. And He'll give you abundant life if you will but come to to Him. That's why Jesus wounds with the law, so He can heal us with grace. Forgiveness and mercy is put in the place of anger and slander. And those of us who have come to know Christ, we know that. So He now applies the law for us. Here's the second half. Look at verse 23. 23 through 25. So, alright, here's the the clarifying of the Sixth Commandment. Here's the applying of the Sixth Commandment. Apply it consistently, apply it urgently, and apply it thoroughly. Therefore, so, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, what does he mean by that? Jesus has given the positive application of the, of the commandment now. The heart must be filled with love at all times, and when it's not, it must be managed. And that begins with being consistent. All of our hearts have this capacity for, for anger and slander and to write people off and then eventually turn to worse. What must be done by a man or a woman who is not living in, in harmony with his or her brother you apply the Sixth Commandment consistently or authentically. I mean, the scene that Jesus gives here in verse 23 is if you bring your gift to the altar. The setting is bringing a gift to the offering. You're offering to the Lord. You're offering to the Lord as an expression of your love in response to God's love. 
Your, your heart is filled with, with love. You're, you're expressing your love for God in your worship. You're, you're bringing an offering before the Lord. It's in, in response to God's love for, for you. You don't worship God. You don't bring an offering to the Lord because you hope to get something like God's a puny little idol. It's like quid pro quo. I'll do this for you, God, if you'll do this for me. We worship God because, because in response to His love for us. We love Him because He first loved us. I mean, we, we, we keep Christ's commandments. We desire to do that. We apply this passage. We sit here and we listen to try to understand what God has to say in context to put it in our lives because we love Him because He loves us and we understand that. You can't turn that around. But he says when you're doing that, if you remember, if you're loving God, you're expressing your love to God in, in offering, if you do that and you remember your, your, your brother has a just reason to accuse you of not loving them, then, then you must fly to them and be reconciled. It has to be consistent. You apply the, the, you apply the, the commandment consistently. You can't say, I love God and not love your neighbor. Isn't that what First John says? If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we say we love God and we hate our neighbor, we're not really saved. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have hatred in your heart, because right here it is. This is You're applying this. Jesus is saying, keep a short account, make sure it's consistent. It's a matter of your mouth must match your, your walk. And, and you also do that quickly. Look at the next scene. These are multiple... Scenes are two scenes here. One is is a person before the offer, uh, before the altar, expressing their love to God. And if while they're there, they realize that their brother has some reason to question their love for them, be consistent with your love for God, because if you love God, you love men. And then in verse twenty-five, he gives us a new scene. Agree with your adversary quickly. Now this is a scene of two individuals in some disagreement, where they're going to go to court. And while you're on your way, before you ever get to the court, before you ever get to where a judge is going to, is going to rule, quickly, he says. Agree with your adversary quickly, urgently. Apply the Sixth Commandment urgently. Apply it consistently and apply it urgently. What's Jesus' point? His point is the time for reconciliation is now. You don't wait to see whether you're going to win. You don't wait to see whether you've got a better case than the other person's case. And then you submit. You, you care more about the person than, than being right. You may not have an opportunity tomorrow. You know, I found it was interesting that this uh, Vester Flanagan guy, his heart grew worse and worse until it was too late. You know one of the ways that he got caught besides the, the, the license plate reader? He sent a text on his phone, to one of his friends that said, quote, I just did something stupid. And this was premeditated. And this guy had wigs and all kinds of other stuff. But after he'd done it, he sends a text to someone that says, I just did something stupid. And Jesus says, quickly, urgently, don't wait until it's too late and your heart gets so hard it has to be broken to fix it. How do you apply the Sixth Commandment? He also says thoroughly. Look at verse, the end of verse 26. He says, agree quickly while you're on your way. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. You actually get into the courtroom and the judge rules against you and he handers, hands you over to the officer and you're going to be thrown in prison because you will be guilty. And look at how he ends here. Assuredly, I say unto you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You do it thoroughly. And Jesus ends this whole passage with, I solemnly declare to you, you will pay every last cent. And the judgment that he's talking about here that will be so thorough, so thorough will be the judgment before God. The judgment will be so thorough, your repentance should most definitely be thorough. Dealing lightly or partially with sins of the heart will end badly, Jesus says. You'll stand guilty before the true judge who sees all.
God can't falsify His scales. And so we will measure up in the end against those scales and we'll find with, that we're unjust. If God would adjust His scales, that would make God unjust. And as we're measured against righteousness of the heart, we learn that we can't attain the righteousness ourselves. And when we see that rightly, we see striving and we look to Christ. We cry out to God for a covering. And as clear and as poignant and as penetrating as His Word is, as His law is, oh, His grace and His mercy is even greater. Grace that is greater than all of my sin. All of my sin that has been revealed by the penetrating law of God. All of my sin was paid for on the cross. All of my sin was placed there and the Son of God absorbed the wrath that I deserved. And so I say, Lord Jesus, I'm guilty. (laughs) Forgive me. Because God loves covering sinners. He uncovers them so that He can cover them. He uncovers their sin so He can cover them with His grace and His mercy. You know what the book of Romans says? God justifies the ungodly. That's a beautiful verse. He justifies the ungodly. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Now listen carefully. When you come to a passage like this, if you don't know the Lord, there's frustration and confusion that comes. At times when you begin to hear the teachings of Christ, you'll hear people point to these minute aspects. I mean, eating lobster or not cutting your beard of the Old Testament. They're trying to find some way to skirt outside of around the reach of the, of the law. And you will continue to be frustrated and confused when you hear the teachings of Christ like this so long as you think that you can make it yourself. And the frustration quickly gives way to conviction And conviction quickly gives way to resignation. And resignation then puts you in the place where you can trust in the Lord Jesus and His blood and righteousness alone. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing for you to pay. You couldn't pay for it if you wanted to. If you tried to. Hear the Word of the Lord. See the light shine with all of the ugliness that's there in the mirror, then look to Christ. Because while God was not well pleased with me or with you, and we're all guilty of the sixth commandment, He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am completely satisfied, well pleased. Amen? And you look to Him and you repent of your sin and you trust in Him and He will clean you and forgive you and give you true fulfillment in life. And that's the way Jesus ends the message. There are two ways to live. Two gates. Two places to build your house. And Jesus is the solid rock and everything else is sinking sand. Where will you place your hope for heaven? If it's in your own righteousness, you have no hope. If it's in Jesus, when the winds and the rains of judgment come, your house will remain because Jesus is the rock. Let you bow your heads. Charles Spurgeon, in his testimony, knew the catechism, had been in church ever since he was a child, probably knew way more Bible than most of us before he was ever converted. And on a snowy day, he couldn't get to where he was intending to go, so he ducks in a little Methodist storefront, and there is a there's an uneducated deacon there that that has wasn't even supposed to preach that day. didn't even know what to say. And so he reads Isaiah, and all he says is, look to Christ and be ye saved. And he tells Mr. Spurgeon and the other five or six people that, that are there, 
miserable you're going to be if you don't obey my text. Look to Christ and be saved. And Charles Spurgeon was regenerated. He was saved. I say the same thing to you. Look away from your sin and look to Christ and be saved. Come to God. Trust in Christ's work. Those who enter the kingdom receive a righteousness that's alien. It's provided by God. It's not attained by you. It's credited to your account. It's granted to you. It's not worked up from within. But you have to cease trying to work up your own righteousness so you can lay hold of Christ's righteousness. And that's the exclusivity of the Gospel. No man comes unto the Father but by me, by the work of Jesus. Will you look to the work of Jesus? Look into the law, see your need, and then look to the cross. Christian, consistently, does your life match your profession? Urgently, are you delaying in a reconciliation Thoroughly, oh, as thoroughly as the judgment will be, so must our repentance. The result of this message is the people were astonished by his teaching because he spoke with such authority, because he was God. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. Oh, God, I have no hope in hearing your law if there wasn't Christ. I'm so guilty of this command. I'm so undone whenever I look into the mirror. I have no hope. There's nothing that I can place my hope in. But that's the Gospel, the good news. As you uncover my sin, then you show me the covering of Christ. Father, I pray for every person here that they would admit their guilt, they would stop running from the law, and that they would flee to Christ and be saved. Repent. Father, even at the end of this service, as we'll stand here, and there'll be people that can pray with them. I pray, Lord, that they would just come and surrender to You. And Father, I pray for us who are redeemed that Your will would be done on earth in our hearts as it is in heaven. As we love You, we would love each other. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.